open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. I think every time I'm here, I'm reminded that this stand was built for Uncle Earl and not for a guy my size. But it's probably easier for me to adapt to this one than it would be for him to adapt to a bigger one, so that's okay. This story here in 2 Kings 5 is the story, a very familiar story, the story of Naaman and being healed uh, from his leprosy. It's been a, a kind of a favorite story of mine since boyhood, and probably the reason why is I remember one of my early childhood, maybe I say early childhood, I was maybe eight or nine, and I don't quite remember the setting. I, in my mind, it was at the Berean meetings, but I'm not sure about that. But I know that David Schwarzentruber was having a children's meeting, and he told us the story about Naaman. And not only did he tell the story, he acted out the story. He took off his glasses, and he rolled up his sleeves, and he took off his shoes and socks, and maybe rolled his pants up a time or two, and and he went through the motions of dipping in the Jordan, and it, it made an impression on, on me as a young boy. And I rest easy, I'm not planning to do that this morning, but I do want to look at this story and the characters in this story and see if we can draw some lessons uh, from the way each of these men approach this situation. I've entitled the sermon, The Power of Humility. And that title is a bit counterintuitive. We don't typically, our world for sure, doesn't often put those two words together, the power of humility. It's, it doesn't really seem to make sense. How is that possible? And yet hopefully as we go through this, this account, this story here this morning, we'll see that. And throughout Scripture, we'll notice that that is a theme that God uses. Let's read 2 Kings 5, beginning at verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were, were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, said I to myself, he will surely come out to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. 
Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant, when my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman, and Naaman saw him running after him. He got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garment. So Naaman said, Please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. Now when he went in, and stood before his master, Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothing and olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. Quite a story, quite a dramatic story on a number of, of fronts. But let's look at the characters of this story and see how each approached this situation, how God was able to use the power, or God's power was displayed through the humility of several of the characters here. Let's look first of all at the two kings. We have the king of Syria mentioned and the king of Israel and it's interesting to me how, how the kings actually got involved to start with. The little girl tells her mistress, who tells her husband Naaman, who goes to his master, the king. And I'm assuming, now maybe it was you know how you play whisper down the lane that by the time you get to the end, the message gets, gets changed a little bit. Maybe that's what happened here. But it, it seems to me that Naaman relayed directly to the king of Syria what, what the girl had said, that the prophet in Israel would 
be able to cure him of his leprosy. Never mentioned the king of Israel. And yet the king of Syria sends Naaman with a letter to the king of Israel. It seems to me that the king of Syria expected, falsely, but expected divine or miraculous power to be synonymous with earthly greatness. Well, if there's somebody that's going to get cured of the leprosy in Israel, surely the king's going to be involved. And so he writes the letter from himself to the king of Israel. The king of Syria, it seems, overlooked really where the source of, of true power, divine power, came from and just assumed, just expected that it would be with the king. It would be with the great and mighty. And then the king of Israel receives the letter, and what happens? He is immediately enraged. Why? Because suddenly the limits to his power are exposed. He's used to being the big shot. He's used to things happening when he says they need to happen. And suddenly this request comes, I'm sending this man to you to heal of his leprosy, and he knows he, he, can't, he can't do it. He doesn't have what it takes to, to do that. And he's immediately infuriated. And, and that's really the, the bottom line of, of, of his problem is that the limits to his power are exposed. He, he was likely a proud man. We know that the, the, kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel had no good kings. I didn't do the research to know exactly who was king at this time. It doesn't really matter. But he was a proud man. And when the limits to his power were exposed, his pride made him angry. And that, that is typical. That is typical of a person who, who is not humble, who is proud, is that when the limits to their ability are put on public display, they, they can't handle it. They just they kind of blow up. They react, sometimes violently. And so we see in both of these kings, both the king of, of Syria and the king of Israel, just totally, totally missed the picture in realizing where true greatness, where true power really comes from. Not with the mighty in terms of earthly power. And both of them missed that point. Again, I don't, I don't know how, what caused the king of Syria to, write, to think that that's the king of Israel had anything to do with this other than just a misunderstanding of where true greatness and true power comes from. Now let's take a look at Naaman. The passage here has actually has a lot of good things to say about Naaman. By way of introduction, it says that he was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. He was a mighty man of valor. You see... I see Naaman as, as a pretty solid guy. It says that he, he was honorable. And it also says that the Lord had given victory to Syria because of him or through him. He shows a certain amount of humility in being willing to listen to the slave girl. Did you ever think about that? That he could have just kind of Pass this off. Like, what does this? We don't know how old the girl was. Presumably, fairly young. Well, I mean, like, what does she know? 
She's, she's just the maidservant. And, and yet he's, he's willing to listen. He's willing to, to try to figure out if there's a possibility here. Understandably, probably leprosy makes one a bit desperate and they'll, you know, try anything perhaps. But we see his reaction later on. He, he, he expected certain things, but yet at this point in the story, he's willing to listen to what the slave girl has to say. It takes a, a certain amount of humility, I believe, to do that. Part of him being a, a, an honorable, upstanding man in, in, in his country. Naaman shows generosity. He, he's loaded up with gifts to take along. Some of that the king gives him, it seems. But also in his interactions with Elisha, he's urging him to, to he wants to bless Elisha for what he's done. And I see, I see a man that's, that's generous and, and willing to, to share with others and willing to uh, reward those who have helped him. I think the one glaring thing that we notice about Naaman that's not so good is that when Elisha just doesn't even come to the door, just sends his own messenger to the door and says, yeah, go, go down there and dip seven times in Jordan. Well, Naaman was looking for a, a little more than that. He said, yeah, I expected at least he would come out and meet me in person and, you know, perform some, some activity. Naaman was, was kind of insulted with the way he was treated. And I don't know if, you know, Elisha did that as, as sort of a test. He knew because he was hearing from God that, that Naaman was looking to be treated like somebody important. And it was Elisha's way of kind of bringing that, that fact to right in front of him to try to make him aware of his own, the pride of his own heart, to bring him to a place of humility. I don't know. We're not told all of that. I don't think Elisha was just in the habit of being rude and not coming to meet people. I think there was a specific reason why he dealt with Naaman this way. And we do see Naaman sort of his, his own ego getting the best of him here a bit. That, like, what's with this? Why don't you show me a little more respect? I, I am somebody after all. And he also is prepared to go back home in a rage and not listen to the to the instruction, to the advice that Elisha had for him. To his credit, though, he's willing to be entreated. He gets just a little bit down the road, and his servants, again, people below him, have the courage to say, now wait a minute, Naaman, if, if Elisha had come out and asked you to do something really difficult and really you know, show how important you were, you, you wouldn't have hesitated. You'd have been happy to do something great to be cured of your leprosy. And all he's asking you to do is go, go dip in the water. Like, it's really simple. Why don't you at least try it? And again, Naaman shows, I think, the true character of his heart that he was willing to listen to somebody who was below him, his servants. They were just along to help take care of him. His ego flash... Didn't, didn't last long. He was able to be entreated. He was able to listen to, to sound and logical advice, even from someone he could have considered an inferior. And we also notice that after he does obey what Elisha told him to do, 
that he recognized God as the source of his healing, as the source of true power, and is willing to change his allegiance as a result of that. Even going so far as to make sure that he said, you know, I have certain duties in my job that when my when the king goes to this temple, this false god, that, that I have to be there. And, you know, I, 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 just, I have to be there to take my master there. And he asked for pardon in that. He, he got it. He understood the one true God and that he could no longer have his allegiance anywhere else. It takes a humble man to be able to change his mind about those sorts of things. When we recognize that we're, our focus has been in the wrong place, we've been following the wrong thing, do we have the necessary humility to change? This was a big change. This was, sometimes we think that the, the changes that are exposed in our lives are, are pretty monumental. This is, this is a change of, of religion, of who I'm actually going to serve. And I, and I can't serve these false gods anymore. I recognize the true God and the source of true power and is humble enough to change that allegiance. And now let's look at Elisha. Elisha, I think, is the most, even though we see a lot of, a lot of good character traits in Naaman, uh, he, he ends up well. Elisha is really the... the shining beacon of what it means to, to serve with humility. If you read 2 Kings 2, 3, and 4, Elisha had experienced a lot of success already as a prophet, a lot of miracles, a lot of God was using him already in, in a lot of mighty ways, miraculous events that, that Elisha was directly involved in. And doesn't seem to have gone to his head. He, he was able to to give God the proper credit for that, it seems. He doesn't have uh, an inflated ego, an inflated sense of his own importance because of his past successes. You know, he could have easily come out and said, yeah, Naaman, you've come to the right place. Let me tell you what happened through me last week and, let, and last month this miracle happened and you're at the right place. Now, we don't see any of that sort of attitude. And perhaps, again, Elisha's response to Naaman and how he is was for his own good as well, that he, he was able to hold his ego in check. Doesn't seem that he was striving for popularity and, and a, a big following. It also seems that he recognized and avoided the trappings of wealth for great leaders. Would it have been wrong for him to have taken some of Naaman's things? It's a kind of a hypothetical question. I mean, I, but I'm not sure just at face value that that necessarily would have been wrong for him to do that. As a matter of fact, he had already just, if you read the chapter or two previous, there was this Shunammite couple that actually built an apartment for him. And that didn't seem to give him any problems. So I don't think it's that Elisha felt like it was fundamentally wrong to receive tangible assets for the work that he was doing. But perhaps there's a difference between 
being willing to receive the apartment that actually aided him in his ministry because in his travels that was a good stopping place. And so it was, it, it helped him do the work that God had called him to do versus taking a reward for doing that work. Maybe that hair gets split pretty fine. I don't know, but there is a difference. And money, whether we like it or not, money is power. Money is influence. And the offering of lavish gifts and, and rewards, both for Elisha and for us, can be a temptation to compromise our message or to show favoritism. And I believe Elisha wanted to be free from those sorts of, of trappings, free from taking anything that would somehow cause him to be beholden to a foreign country, a foreign nation perhaps, and even more important than that, that it would cause him to be tempted to, to compromise saying what God really wanted him to say. All of us have feet of clay, and that's a reality that all of us need to deal with. It's one of the reasons why we have chosen not to go the route of, of salaried ministers, is because there's that temptation to, to speak what gives you the biggest paycheck. We need to be humble enough to admit that, and I'm glad that, we, that I don't have to worry about that, that I can speak the word of God freely without having to worry about whether it's going to, I'll get fired next week because people don't like what I have to say. For better or for worse, I'm here. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I think overall that's a good thing there's points to be made on the other side for sure, but the point here is that, that money and influence, money is power. Money is influence, and we need to guard against those being compromising factors in us being willing to stand for truth. It seems that Elisha made a distinction between help and support that could facilitate God's work and a financial reward that would compromise it. That's an, that's an important lesson for us. We need to keep that clearly in focus in our minds. Now let's take a look at Gehazi. A couple things I notice about Gehazi in this, in this passage he seems to be a little bit upset. There seems to be some, some national or racial prejudice coming out in him and how Elisha has dealt with Naaman. Perhaps an extra layer because Naaman was a Syrian. They were enemies of Israel. And notice how he refers to him. Look, my master has spared Naaman, this Syrian. Now maybe I'm reading more into that phrase than what it deserves, but you can almost hear the derogatory overtones coming out. This, this dirty old Syrian, and, and my master has spared him. And it seems he's a little put out by that. There's a certain amount of, it seems like, a certain amount of contempt and, and racial superiority, national superiority towards Naaman. It, it, it kind of leaks out here. 
Gehazi clearly considers himself better than Naaman. He also seems to have a bit of a haughty disregard for how Elisha has, has treated Naaman, how he's helped him, says he's spared him. And, and you kind of get the feeling that had things gone Gehazi's way, Elisha would have just turned the man back and I don't want to help you. You're a Syrian. You deserve to have leprosy. And I hope your whole army gets it so you don't bother us anymore. That sort of seems to be the attitude that Gehazi has, both towards Naaman and towards his master, Elisha. There seems to be a hearty, haughty disregard for his master and the actions that his master took in refusing this, this reward. Pride and greed are close first cousins. And you can see the, the greed and the, the jealousy that's in his heart. Well, if Elisha's not going to take something, I, I sure don't mind. And even closer yet, dishonesty and greed are in the same family. And you see how quickly he was willing to stoop to dishonesty to, to get this reward. He runs after him and he meets, I mean, just first, right off the bat, tells him a bald-faced lie. I suspect that Naaman probably would have gone ahead and given him the stuff had he just said, hey, my master doesn't seem to want any of this stuff, but I'd be glad for some, or I've decided I could use some of your stuff. He'd probably got it, right? Naaman seemed only too willing to, be, to, to share it with him. Yet he fabricates this story about, well, we've, we've suddenly got some visitors and, and Elisha has sent you, uh, sent me to you to, so we can get some stuff to take care of their needs. First pride, then greed, then dishonesty. And it kind of makes me wonder, what? What sort of motivation did Gehazi have for being Elisha's servant? Was it possibly hoping to cash in on a certain status or, or whatever that came with being the servant of God's prophet? I, I don't know, but if, if this is a, a good picture of who Gehazi is, it, it does kind of make you wonder if his, if his motives for being Elisha's servant are really not that pure. And so in these five characters, you kind of get the full spectrum of how people respond to situations either with humility or the lack thereof. And we see kind of the results. Often anger comes, in, comes into play when when people are confronted with, with their pride. We've already mentioned greed and jealousy and disrespect and dishonesty in Gehazi. We also see how God was actually only able to work through the people who were willing to humble themselves, through Elisha and through Naaman. And that is one of the recurring themes of Scripture. A couple other passages I want to look at just 
quickly. Let's go to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 9 and verse 11. Solomon writing here says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. And I'm pulling this verse just a bit out of context, perhaps. Solomon, you know the book of Ecclesiastes, how he, he writes on and on about the futility of life without God. And this is part of, part of that discussion. But the point here, he says, I, I notice that it's not always... It's not always the, the strong and the mighty that, that have the most success. Riches don't always come to the people who have the most knowledge or understanding. This fact of life. Matthew 20. Verses 25 to 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, it's a, it's a dichotomy. It doesn't quite make sense. Jesus says if you, if you want to be great, to have true greatness, you need to humble yourself. And if you work to be great, God will humble you in ways that you don't really want. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Corinthians 1. Starting to read at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message, the foolishness of preaching, to save those who believe." For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world, to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, 
and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's a constant recurring theme of Scripture that God is in the business of using the weak and the foolish and the, you could say the second class. How many stories of the Bible involve a woman who is barren, which was a curse, or the second-born son, or, or the most unlikely? I mean, you can just go down through the list, and that's, that's a theme of Scripture. God is not looking for the high and mighty. He is looking for people whose hearts are humble towards him. The race is not to the strong. Not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. One of the great paradoxes of Scripture. Humility must be genuine. It can't be an act or have a manipulative intent. We cannot, dare not, should not at least try to assume the outward appearance of humility in order to get what we want from others. Yet the power of humility, that's where true power comes from. That's where God can work. When we recognize that any, anything that we do is only because and through the power and the grace of God. then we are in a position to actually be used of God, to influence, to spread his message, to proclaim his word. And that's not negating the value of knowledge or study or anything like that, but simply to say that you cannot edu educate yourself into being filled with the Spirit of God. The power of humility will most often result in better leadership and increased influence with people. But again, that, that's not really the goal. It just, that's just how it works. That's just how it happens. In other words, the moment we think, I've got humility figured out, well, then we've, we've lost it. And so humility is not so much something that you do as simply who you are because of how God has changed you. And we start to think of humility as something that we do, we end up, I think, with, with probably insincere humility. And once we think we have done humility, that we've kind of captured it, then we've lost it. You can't toot your horn about your own humility because if you do, you're not humble. But it's only in humility where God's truly power, God's power can truly work through us for his glory.
Let's have a song.